Hi, it's Arjun. This week's video focuses on three updates from my last two notes. First, I want to address the growing risk of either really bad or merely bad uh, public policy being pursued by our great governments here in the US as well as Europe and how investors and corporates might think through navigating that. Uh, secondly, divestment. Uh, this is really a pretty evil, in my opinion, ideology, the sort of stop fossil fuels, divest from the companies. And you know, it's historically been perhaps more virtue signaling on the part of Ivy League institutions and, and similar such places. But it's ratcheted up with the news that Munich Re was going to, a major German reinsurance company, would stop underwriting new oil and gas fields. And this is a, a, a really unfortunate turn. And I'll, I'll go through that in a bit. And then finally, the backlash, the anti-woke ESG uh, funds you're starting to hear. I get it. Uh, perhaps it can feel good to have these folks kind of countering the madness from the other side. On the other hand, I think these points, these funds or these anti-woke initiatives kind of miss the mark. The issue, in my opinion, isn't ESG. It is sort of climate-only ideology, and I'll, I'll get into that as well. But here's the video. I'll see you at the end. So we've got a growing desire, apparently, on the part of government to try and help. Uh, and there is the famous quote. I use it as the title of the note from two weeks ago. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. For sure, uh, some of the most concerning words in the English language. I think President Reagan had that right. But here, here are some of the proposals that have been come up. And so you, I'll provide them. You decide. Price caps. Export bans, windfall profit taxes, NOPEC legislation, price gouging. This is what has been proposed uh, to try and solve what are really fundamental energy challenges. We need more energy supply. Uh, you need otherwise less energy demand per unit of GDP growth. It, it can't be that recession lessens our demand growth. You want to have efficiency gains. None of these proposals get to that core point, and I'll talk about that more in the next slide. I think there's a common theme here on the part of politicians, which is to deflect blame and to try to yell their way to lower prices. Now, you can say, this is who they are. This is what they do. Um, I, I, I don't know. At some point, isn't this supposed to be leadership? What about taking some responsibility for the poor policies that have in part led to where we are today? Energy markets are tight in large part because the last decade was awful for the sector. And so traditional investors and companies said, let's slow down our CapEx. Some of that's, a lot of that is just normal cyclical stuff that happens. But there's nothing on the policy front trying to make things better. And certainly these specific proposals, I think, have a chance to make things quite a bit worse in terms of supply-demand imbalances and the type of price volatility, both to the upside, perhaps after that to the downside that we might see in coming quarters, months, years, what have you. I think the biggest risk we have from these types of strategies is really shortages. And I think that should be concerning to everyone. Shortages in the short term can make an investor, an oil and gas investor, say, hey, that means prices are probably higher. Yes, but when you have shortages, you dramatically increase the risk of recession. There is nothing good about having price spikes due to shortages that then leads to recession for anybody, whether that's the consumers, whether that's the least fortunate people on earth, or even the most fortunate, or oil and gas companies, or oil and gas companies investors, you do not want policies that raise the risk of actual energy shortages happening. They are bad. 
there are no quick fixes here, right? And, the, and at the end of the day, that's the core of the issue. Politicians up for election. We have midterms here in the U.S., but there's an election every two years. Uh, UK is apparently frequently changing their prime minister. So stuff happens. I get it. Um, and there is a need to try and do things uh, for society at large. But n none of these solutions are the answer. They're all short-term in nature, and they are certainly not helping. We're now almost two years into this sort of better price environment we're in. So there was plenty of time a year and a half ago to start doing things that could help in the long term. But instead, we get these, I think they're going to be very counterproductive, uh, attempted short-term measures on the part of politicians. So how do we think about navigating policy madness? And, and, and so I've got the policies going in the, I guess it's the vertical column, price caps, export bans, windfall profit taxes, NOPEC legislation, and price gouging rhetoric. And I, and I did explain and talk about each of these policies Again, in the I'm here from the government note from two weeks ago. But if you look at a paradigm, what might these policies lead to? And to me, the key outcomes of any of these things are either energy shortages, bad, disincentivizing the supply response, bad, or more geopolitical turmoil, bad. It's just a question of which exactly bad outcome might a specific policy lead. And a couple observations here. The worst thing that can happen, and again, it would be bad for energy companies, it would be bad for consumers, it's just bad for the world, it would be actual energy shortages. If a policy leads to actual energy shortages, not good, should not be pursued. And let's just take export bans as an example, a very, I think, tempting policy that U.S. politicians are contemplating. And so on the one hand, you'd say, hey, we can bottleneck gasoline or, or some other you know, crude oil or what have you in the United States, let's keep it for our own people. But these markets are global, and there are lots of trade flows, and there are also lots of other issues and regulations. The Jones Act, uh, which is I'm not going to go into all these things, but there's so many secondary and tertiary policies that would also need to be adjusted for this to have a potentially positive benefit. And then you think about rest of the world that depends on uh, American gasoline exports. And I'm thinking of uh, Mexico and large parts of Latin America and Europe, which depends on LNG exports. Uh, you may not create shortage here in the U.S. You're certainly likely to create it in the rest of the world. That is bad for those countries, all, most of whom are big allies of the U.S., and ultimately it's bad for Americans as well. And again, if you don't adjust all the policies here, you, you, you run the risk of even shortages here in the U.S. Price caps have can have that same effect. The, no one likes to pay a very high gasoline or diesel or LNG price, but rationing is not the answer. Uh, th th that this is not, you know, price caps that sort of create the perception of limiting the price increase is is not how you're going to efficiently allocate a scarce resource. And we've already seen this play out many times through history. Most recently in the 1970s here in the U.S., I am old enough to remember odd even license plates and gas lines waiting in in line. I was young at the time with my mom and probably my dad as well. Uh, not, price caps, hard to believe. What, what I think is another observation of this chart is look at the middle column. Almost all of these policies disincentivize a supply response. We are looking for the opposite. We want, <laughs> we, we want a supply response. Why, as a politician, would you pursue a policy that disincentivizes supply? And I, I didn't check the NOPEC legislation. I, I don't think that actually is going to disincentivize 
production out of the OPEC countries. But that box, some would argue, should be checked as well. And it is, I don't know, it's ironic, it's sad, it's whatever it is. All these policies are going to disincentivize supply. That is not a good thing. And of course, a couple of them lead to geopolitical turmoil. I guess export bans win the award of creating the most turmoil, though maybe price caps could as well uh, in terms of shortages, disincentivizing supply and geopolitical turmoil. And I guess disincentivizing supply is kind of the key risk of, of all these various policies. If someone can find some good in this, I would welcome the feedback in the comments. Uh, I, I don't I don't see what green box or column we could have created. These policies are not good. They're just not good. So let me talk about Munich Re and the divestment initiative. So I, I think most people who subscribe are familiar, but divestment is the idea that whether it's investors or universities or what have you, that but basically investors should divest from fossil fuels and that somehow this is going to lead to climate action. Those may be the two most dangerous words, climate action. For sure, as I've said many times, I am in favor of steps to move to lower carbon, more sustainable forms of energy. Divesting fossil fuels is not the answer. And there, there are two elements to it. The one is they, they put pressure on investors. The thing about that is it is a slow slog. Uh, it, and I've held that as the sector recovers, as profits improve, investors will absolutely chase uh, improving returns on capital, improving stock price performance. We're already starting to see it. 5% of the S&P is a key threshold. We just tripped it. And now you're seeing more broad-based interest in the oil and gas sector come back. I'll probably talk about that issue in a different note. It's, it's a, a positive tailwind we're going to have. But the other way that the divestment initiative comes after it is to come over the top by putting pressure on the CEOs and boards of financial services companies, the likes of uh, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, and insurance companies, in this case, Munich Re or Zurich or AIG, whom, whomever it is. And the, the big difference is this is much, much smaller universe of capital markets and insurance company providers. And if you start picking them off, um, you actually can have a pretty negative impact on the ability of the fossil fuel industry to finance itself. And I think this likely is going to be less of an issue for the largest companies that can have both the balance sheet and the wherewithal to make alternate decisions on, on, on avoiding, for example, capital markets issuances. But I think for any mid or smaller size company, this can be quite devastating. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I, to me, these are fundamentally evil ideologies. The idea that whether it's Munich Re, and I don't know them, but I'm using them as the example since they most recently came out with this policy, would choose to stop underwriting policies that provide the world the energy it needs. You can, uh, you can say, I want to decarbonize. You can say, I want to accelerate uh, the efforts to move to lower carbon forms of energy. That's fine to say that. But that is not our mix today, and that is not going to be our mix 10 or 20 years from now. We are still going to be using a lot of oil and natural gas. And what does it really mean to divest? When you talk about divestment from these Western companies, it is going to be U.S., Canadian, and European oil and gas projects and companies and so forth. They're, they're, you know, I don't know their exact business, but as a generic comment, it is not really going to impact, for example, Russian oil and gas companies or Iranian uh, oil companies. 
this is these these divestment policies now pursued by a major financial services company pursued by Ivy League institutions ultimately target American production, Canadian production, European oil and gas companies. How is that good? It is not good. It is evil and it needs to it needs pushback. The issue is not all the ESG virtue signaling. This is the issue. This should scare the heck out of people. It's just one company will overcome Munich Re, right? And capitalism, fortunately, in theory, says other companies will be there to fill the void. But what if this spreads? It is very easy, I think, for a major financial services company that may not have some strong ideology one way or the other to say, you know what? Oil and gas is only 2% of our profits. We're getting yelled at by all these climate crazies. Let's just skip oil and gas for now. Maybe it is an industry that's going. That is fundamentally bad news for humanity. There's nothing good about divestment. And I think it's a potential game changer, especially if it spreads to other financial services firms. And I'm sorry, I probably should have put out the bullets. When you divest, you're impacting US, Canada, and Europe, right? That does not make sense. Who is most hurt? Everyone is hurt. There's nothing good about these policies. This is not constructive climate action. This is not going to lead to some acceleration of decarbonization efforts. By supporting US, Canadian oil and gas companies, you're not promoting fossil fuels. What you're promoting is a healthy energy environment. What you're promoting is economic growth, which benefits everyone, which enables decarbonization long-term. Everybody gets hurt by this, uh, especially the least fortunate. And I will say this, I think many folks in sort of my sphere, the, the financial services sphere, who kind of support what I'm saying, will push back on the climate, climate activists. They're not the issue. It's business leaders that made this decision. Climate activists are 100% free to pursue what they think they believe. And whether I agree or disagree, who cares? They're 100% entitled to their opinions. It is business leaders that made this decision. Munich Re is a, a, a private company. And they're European and they're German. So I get their stakeholders and different influences than we say we have here in the U.S., but they still made the decision. It was not a climate activist that made this decision. They might have compelled Munich Re to make the decision, but it was business leaders that made the decision. Where are the business community in speaking out about this? This is a fundamentally evil ideology, divestment. Let me turn to anti-woke ESG, because I think for many, this seems like the answer. And, and I get this actually may be a compelling business strategy, if we have all this sort of, let's just call it regular, sorry, woke ESG, then anti-woke ESG. So, okay, finally someone's pushing back. But, um, I, you know, to me, ESG isn't the issue here. I, I don't think any anti-woke ESG person would say these companies should not care about governance. Clearly they should. Governance is a critical issue for most private, all private companies and even some government-owned companies. Um, social. Uh, we saw last decade, every Shale EMP had the same business strategy. They're all run by essentially petroleum engineers. Where was the diversity and thought process? So the S does make a difference. And on environmental issues, no one could possibly think it makes sense to say not care about worker safety or clean air, clean water, and these kind of things. And so I will say that ESG is a philosophy on how you run a company, and it is critical. So we might push back on the virtue signaling part of this. 
we might push back on whether ESG ratings, which I, I think are silly and I'm not a believer in, make sense. But as a fundamental investor or portfolio manager or company, I do think you're going to care about these individual elements, governance, diversity of thought process, traditional environmental. So the, the problem is the climate-only ideology. The idea that it's not really ESG, this is backdoor climate action, uh, and that therefore that's the purpose of this. And I think that's what needs pushback. It's not the anti-woke stuff that needs pushback. And so we do need reform when it comes to ESG. There is a real problem with energy literacy. I, I don't think most people understand what scope three emissions really means and how ridiculous it is to think that this is just about what Exxon or Chevron or, or, or BP or Shell or a bunch of large companies do. Amazon Prime is unquestionably got to be one of the largest carbon emitters out there. We drive SUVs. I've been through this a few times before, but there is a fundamental... Energy companies, oil and gas companies, produce almost nothing that actually use fossil fuels. They produce fossil fuels out of the ground, but it is all of society. They're, you can't look around at not and see anything that's not being created in part by fossil fuels. That it is all of society. So we do need to decarbonize. I'm completely on board with that. We do need to care about sustainability and biodiversity and a whole bunch of different things. But we need some energy literacy big time. You're not going to electrify everything and have it all run on a grid that cannot handle intermittent resources. It's lunacy. We need to educate people on the energy, read Vaclav Schmiel, the professor from Canada, some great books. It is absolutely not a partisan situation there. He is a, a true scientist um, and I think would help him. We need energy for all. That has to be the only goal we have. You have water, you have food, and you have energy. It's a basic necessity, a basic right. How can you take energy away from people? It's crazy, it's crazy talk, right? We need energy for all. ESG that does anything other than ensuring we have energy for all is not ESG. We do not need a one-size-fits-all climate approach. It's probably worthy of its own video. Again, scope three, nationally determined contributions. The, <laughs> these climate accounting, it, it could not have been a diverse group that was in the room when they created these policies. It had to have been a bunch of climate ideologues because they don't make any sense. I do not think ESG should be trying to turn investors into policymakers. And again, that is the part of ESG that is worthy of pushback. I will still say I don't think the anti-woke ESG is the answer there. And what I would maybe plead for is for portfolio managers to, who clearly are to some degree invested in oil and gas companies to actually take time to take, that, take back the vote. Stop turning it over to these other groups that vote on your behalf within your firms. Um, vote for the shares as you see fit. That doesn't mean you 100% support management. It's not at all. There are many instances where oil and gas management teams deserve and need pushback. There's no argument here otherwise. But I do think the portfolio manager that owns XYZ company is likely to be more energy literate than some random ESG person who's responsible for the entire universe of companies. Right? I think portfolio managers have a better chance to know what they're investors in, uh, what they're invested in, take back the vote. So, how do you navigate policy as an oil and gas company? Um, Supervol mindset, and 
when you think about policy, when you think about the bad outcomes that might exist out there, when you think about how disincentivizing any supply can lead to price spikes, all that might feel good as a company. Hey, higher prices, more cash flow, but you do run the risk of recession. When you have a world where there's no spare capacity, when there is no above ground inventories, and there's no motivation either from traditional investors or new investors or anybody to invest in CapEx, then you solve these things through demand destruction, but the other side of demand destruction is recession. You know, and, and so you can go from a pretty high price to a much lower price very quickly, super vol mindset, and I've, I've talked about that in previous videos. Fortress balance sheet, I think it is very unfortunate, but you cannot count long-term that the capital markets are gonna be as you remember them. I, I don't think they're going away because it's too insane to think that the financial services industry is just going to abandon the oil and gas sector. That is, I, I do think the fundamental issue with that will become apparent, even if Munich Re is going to go away here. Um, but to think that you want anything other than a fortress balance sheet with this kind of divestment and policy issues going on, um, I, I think it, it, this certainly supports a very strong balance sheet. With all the volatility, with all the policy constraints, M&A is inevitable. Um, you know, again, all oil and gas companies have a depleting resource. So there's going to be a need to replace it if you want to be a going concern. M&A is in inevitable. There is lots of change coming. There are lots of moving parts here. And those first two points, super vol mindset, fortress balance sheet, it sets you up not to buy things to empire build, but to take advantage of dislocations in areas of competitive advantage or future competitive advantage for a given company. The last point is, and it goes back to a couple slides ago, there is a need to speak up. Um, again, I, I, was, I enjoy my behind the scenes roles that I have and people can see it on LinkedIn, my affiliations. And as always, <laughs> please don't blame any of my affiliations for any of my views. I do super spike purely in my own name and you reflect 100% my own views, but there is a need to speak up, right? If you know anything about energy, if you anything, know anything about rationality and pragmatism and finance and business and economics and returns on capital, you have to speak up um, directly and honestly, not the corporate speak that sometimes is the language of appeasement. That is the worst speak. That is what has gotten us to where we are today. And I will give credit, and they may not want public credit, but I'm going to give them credit. Jamie Dimon, thank you, sir, for speaking up. And I've have got a huge admiration. I don't know him, Chris Wright of Liberty, the oil field services company, uh, and probably the best ESG report out there. I would encourage people, it's Liberty Frack Services or something like that. I would encourage people to read their report. It makes the fundamental case for why we need energy for all. And Mr. Wright does promote moving towards lower carbon forms of energy and cleaning up things like clean air, clean water, sustainability, biodiversity. But you, you'll only do it with a strong economy, which has been driven by fo fossil fuels makes the world healthier, safer, cleaner, environmentally stronger. And then lastly, Toby Rice of EQT. I'm sure uh, most people listening to Super Spiked understand EQT and their LNG strategy. But I give Toby Rice, another person I don't actually know very well, uh, a lot of credit for speaking up. We need more of this. Different people, not everyone likes doing videos, not everyone likes speaking publicly, but there is a need to be out there and to show your voice. 
Munich Re should be a real wake-up call to people. It is not okay. It is bad, bad, bad stuff, right? Speak up, push back on a lot of the, frankly, misinformation and dishonesty that comes from this notion that we can quickly get rid of fossil fuels and we can electrify any, everything and somehow only with intermittent resources. The, it's an insane, insane ideology. And thank you to Jamie Dimon, Chris Wright, and Toby Rice for speaking up. We need more of that. So I'll end this video on a personal note. For those of you that watch these videos and see me, this may surprise you, but I am actually not a great athlete. I'm, I'm hopefully an okay oil equity research analyst, not a great athlete. Since I started... I think you know, I love playing golf. Since I stopped working at Goldman, I retook up golf, basically. I played a little bit when I was younger, but nothing too serious. I started at 45. I'm now 53. Eight years. I've generally played 100 to 120 rounds a year. And this year, since I started Super Spike, since the energy cycles come back and I'm finding myself traveling a bit more again, my rounds are down 30, 35%. I think I'll be lucky to get to 75 rounds. And here in the U.S. Northeast, the season is kind of early April to maybe mid or late November. Call that, you know, seven, maybe eight months of golf is, is what you get in at, at most. Uh, and so 100, 120 rounds, good. Uh, I'm down 30, 35% a year. But despite that, um, we came away with the club championship B-Flight trophy. Now, what's the B-Flight? The regular club championship. It's for the kids at the club. Those that are in college, just out of college. That's what the boys play. The men, we play in the flights. And the B flight is generally folks with the kind of six to 12 type handicap. I was a nine, 10 handicap for most of this year. I'm gonna end this golf season at an 8.3, my lowest handicap ever. Had some good rounds here in the fall, uh, but won my first sports trophy ever. And it shows a few things. It's never too late to get started. I basically started playing golf at 45. I'm now 53 and I think this victory, it's a victory for, for all of Superspect. In a year where my rounds are down by one third and we're just about at the one year anniversary of Superspect, it is possible that this better balance about writing and talking publicly about energy and commodity markets and climate and policy has been good. The results, I think, speak for themselves. Thank you. Thank you.